0: You can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 22. One of the things that we've seen throughout Acts is that Paul and his companions faced an awful lot of injustice. We've seen that as we've gone throughout the book of Acts. We're going to catalog that a little bit here in our introduction. One of the things that we know is that as we've gone through this book of Acts, we've seen how the gospel has exploded, but also persecution has risen. The two in many respects go hand in hand. Remember that Paul suffered injustice at the hands of his fellow Jews. We saw that when they persecuted him in the city of Pisidian Antioch and in Lystra and Thessalonica and Berea. They sort of would chase him down city after city, and so he suffered these injustices at the hands of his own Fellow Jews, He also suffered injustice at the hands of the Gentiles. We saw in Iconium, the Gentiles tried to kill Paul. In Philippi, the fortune tellers dragged Paul and Silas out of the marketplace. They had them arrested, thrown into prison on trumped up charges. At Ephesus, you saw that the tradesmen there weren't happy, the idol makers. And so they caused... Trouble for Paul and his traveling companions, so he faced this injustice at the hands of his own fellow Jews, at the hands of Gentiles. He even suffered injustice at the hands of government officials. You remember the chief magistrates in Philippi arrested Paul and Barnabas. They stripped them naked. They had them beaten with rods, and then they threw them into prisons and locked them in stocks, all without even a trial. We saw this ironic twist last week when Paul was arrested He was being beaten by the Jews. They tried to kill him after dragging him out of the temple in Jerusalem. And this commander shows up and actually arrests Paul. We call that an injustice. So that was pretty typical for Paul and the early disciples. Paul and his companions were not necessarily alone. If you remember, Jesus himself suffered injustice at the hands of the Jewish leaders, at the hands of the Romans. In fact, he suffered injustice right up until the point of death. Peter, John, and other apostles were threatened, arrested, imprisoned, flogged by Jewish epistles, including even the high priest in the book of Acts so far. Stephen was stoned to death. Remember, even Paul himself was responsible for some of that injustice brought upon early believers. He chased them down, arrested them, imprisoned them, and apparently even had some of them put to death. As much of a downer as it is to talk about persecution, we find it in the scriptures. It's a part of Acts. We even saw it in the Old Testament with some prophets. God must have obviously included it in his word for a reason. And we've talked about that before where, in some respects, I get up here in front of you and it's a downer to talk about persecution. You know, church is supposed to be a place where you walk away lifted up and filled as you leave, right? Which is why so many churches today focus on preaching to felt needs, (laughs) want to avoid the difficult topics. They don't want to depress anyone as you walk out the door. Well, we've talked about that, and you know, Dustin and I um, have no desire to placate anybody. We would much rather you just hear the word, and so we're going to talk about persecution uh, when it is appropriate. The good news is, this morning, I'm not going to focus so much on the persecution as Paul's response to the persecution. So as Dustin mentioned, Paul had three responses to persecution. The third one that we're going to talk about today is actually in our passage today, but before we do that, I'm going to sort of summarize Paul's two prior responses to persecution through events that we've already looked at. So we're going to kind of start outside of our passage today and look at two of Paul's responses, and then the third response will actually come from our text today, which is Acts chapter 22, verses 22 through 29. So let's go ahead and start with Paul's first response. To persecution. What can we learn from him? Paul's first response was that he did not allow fear or the threat of persecution to deter him from his mission. Let me restate that. Paul did not allow fear or the threat of persecution to deter him from the mission that Christ had given to him. You remember when Paul began his journey Heading to Jerusalem, he was aware that he would face persecution as he arrived at Jerusalem. We'll turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, we're going to look at verses 22 through 23. And you're going to have, you can keep your finger there because we're going to come back to that a little bit later. But Acts chapter 20, verse 22. And now behold, bound in spirit, I'm on my my way to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Keep your finger there, we'll come back to that. He didn't know specifically what threat he would face at Jerusalem, but he did know that every city he went to, the Holy Spirit revealed to him, you are going to face bonds and afflictions. And we see that. Almost every city Paul went to, not everyone, but almost everyone that Paul went to, he faced persecution. Persecution. Sometimes it was a little mild, and he would rush out of the city. We're going to see that a little bit later as well. But there were other times that we saw that Paul was beaten, left out for dead just outside the city. So Paul knew that his life would involve persecution. His ministry would involve persecution no matter where he went. The Holy Spirit made that clear to him. So you would say that it was a pattern for the Apostle Paul. Nothing shocking there. Again, we've seen that with the other apostles who faced ongoing persecution as they preached the gospel. You'll also remember that when Paul arrived in Caesarea, he was specifically warned by a prophet named Agabus. And he was given more specific details on what he would face as he got to Jerusalem. Look at chapter 21, verses 8 through 11. Chapter 21, verse 8. And on the next day, We left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses, and they were staying there for some days. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, Jerusalem, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet in his own hands, and he said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Paul was warned by Agabus that as he gets to Jerusalem, he'll be arrested, he'll be handed over, and he'll be bound. None of this, however, deterred Paul. Go back to chapter 20, verse 24. Chapter 20, verse 24, Paul's response. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish the course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul says, in the face of this persecution, I don't consider my own life Because I need to finish the course that Jesus has given to me, which is to testify about the grace of God. And so we see that Paul's first response to persecution, to difficulty, to dangers, to tribulation, was basically not to allow that fear or the threat to deter him from the mission of preaching, of testifying, of God's grace through the coming death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ we see the same thing if you go to chapter 21 look at verses 12-14 through and see how he responded when Agabus gave him more specific details of what would happen at Jerusalem chapter 21 starting in verse 12 when Paul heard this we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem and Paul answered what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm not only ready to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. What's our takeaway from this? Like Paul, we can't allow fear or the threat of persecution, difficulties, struggles tribulation to deter us from the mission that Jesus Christ gave us. We were called to be witnesses. Unfortunately, many Christians and churches have been deterred. Some have compromised on doctrine and practices because of the heat that they receive for doing what they do. It's not necessarily new. I'm sure there are many times in history when this has happened, but we see it taking Place here where we have churches now that refuse to cover certain topics. We have churches that have compromised their doctrine. Oftentimes, what we've seen most recently is that it kind of surrounds the LGBTQ issue. That's where we see it sort of bubbling to the surface. A number of years ago, Andy Stanley put a graphic up on the screen for one of his sermons where he portrayed a homosexual couple. And he began to talk about how Um, it was a family just like other families when you got pushback he removed the graphic you could go watch a sermon online the graphic was magically disappeared I saw the first version of it with the graphic I then saw the second version where the graphic disappeared and the sermon had been edited he talked openly and bragged openly about how homosexuals practicing were involved with ministry roles at the church What would possess a preacher of the gospel to be proud of that? Because there's heat. There's pressure. If you're not woke. Just this last week, I learned of a pastor down in Florida. Just 2020, he happened to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Preached a sermon. Where in his sermon, he was talking about the diversity within the church. And he mentioned... A lot of great things about what a church should be and what his church was. But as part of that, mentioned how there were within his church homosexual couples and even cohabitating couples, meaning men and women living together. And he went on to say that they were involved with ministry at the church. What would cause a conservative evangelical pastor who headed up one of the largest evangelical denominations in the nation to make such statements. In many respects, almost proud of the fact that's compromise. It's part of this woke culture of wanting to fit in, not taking the heat when others say, wait a minute, you guys are preaching against A, B, or C. And so of, instead of saying, that's what the Bible says, they put on their woke clothes, and say, well, but we're diverse, we welcome, we, we don't hate them, you know, hate the sin, not the sinner. And, and I'm not saying we should be up there yelling and screaming, And but again, it's this desire to not face the heat for something that the Bible says, and so we compromise, or we avoid. It's not going away, folks. You've heard what's happened in Canada recently, Canada passing legislation that, essentially makes it very difficult for even pastors from their own pulpits to preach on biblical marriage. It's considered hate speech, and pastors have been charged with crimes. Australia just did the same thing. We have 28 states in the United States right now that have similar laws against preaching or saying things against what they call conversion therapy. Some have religious exemptions. Some don't. Well, again, that's the hot button issue right now. But that's just where it starts. There are 13 countries around the world where it's now illegal for Christians to speak out on certain issues, specifically related to marriage, etc. We have, like I said, counties here. Right now, there's a former government official in Finland. I don't know if you've seen this, just this last week. Mother of five. I think she's a doctor, if I remember correctly. Years ago, she wrote a pamphlet on biblical marriage. And she was on a radio show, I guess, or a TV show back in 2018 where she was interviewed on her views on marriage. 2019, she sent a tweet regarding marriage. She just finished, They just finished the, the lawsuit and she's now waiting for the verdict In Finland. She will likely spend time in prison simply because of saying and preaching what the Bible says. So the question is, what do we do in the face of that? Because again, that's just the beginning. Well, Paul decided he wouldn't let the threat of persecution, the threat of danger, the threat to his very own life deter him from preaching the gospel. And there are some churches that argue, well, you know, those issues are side issues. The LGBT issue and... Those have nothing to do with the gospel. That's a lie. Because the gospel, in its broadest sense, is anything that the Bible declares to be true. And if we have to avoid... An issue like LGBT or. Well, i meaning to talk to you, Dustin. Um, if we have to avoid certain issues and if we cave into allowing government officials or other people or the cancel culture to tell us what we can and cannot preach, then what happens when they come right to us and say, You can't mention Jesus? Has that happened? We have Christian businesses that are being put out of business because the ordinances in their city say, you must take pictures at a gay wedding, or you must make a cake celebrating this or celebrating that. So the question is, where do you draw that line? And so it is about the gospel. So when churches compromise and say, well, we'll just avoid those issues, or we'll talk about how diverse we are and, you know, and, try to find manipulative ways to sort of, you know, protect themselves from the heat that comes from simply standing up for what the Bible says. That's just a compromise. And Paul refused to do that. The apostles refused to do that. Remember when the apostles said, who are we going to obey? You or the Lord? Lord. And so the first response from the Apostle Paul was he didn't allow the fear of the persecution to deter him from the mission to which Christ had given him. He was not going to allow others to to determine what it was that he would say, what it was that he would preach, what it was that he would share. And that became his pattern. Paul's second response, and this one almost is... Striking, his second response was to actually take those times of persecutions, those situations of danger and tribulation, and turn them into opportunities to advance the gospel. He turned it on its head. You want me to shut up? Well, let me tell you about Jesus. We saw him do this in the Jewish synagogues in the marketplaces while he was making tents in the Greek school of Tyrannus when he was kicked out of the synagogue, even when he was before the city council at the Areopagus, Paul took advantage of any, every one of those circumstances to share the gospel. Over the last two weeks, we see how he took this dire, life-threatening situation with the Jews who had dragged him out of the temple, beat him, had to be rescued by the Roman commander. Paul even took that opportunity as an opportunity to advance the gospel. Remember what he did? Go back to Gen- or to um, Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21 <clears throat> let, me, let me preface this first. When Paul first arrived at Jerusalem, Remember all the excitement. He was sharing with, with James what God had done among the Gentiles, and he discovers that the Jews weren't happy with him. That's Acts, uh, that's, uh, Acts 21, chapter, or chapter 21, verse 20. And when they heard and they began glorifying God, they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they're all zealous for the law, and they've been told about you. That you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. And then what is to be done? And so James lays out this plan for Paul to go to the temple, in some respects to appease the Jews, by showing that Paul still honored Jewish ceremony and laws, still honored the temple, still obeyed Moses. And so Paul, when he tried to counter these false accusations by participating in this purification uh, ceremony at the temple, the Jews attacked him, dragged him out of the temple, attempted to kill him before he had to be rescued. And what happens? Paul's arrested, he's being dragged out, and then we see Paul's response to that. Acts chapter 21, down in verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul says, essentially he says, no, I'm a Jew of Tarsus, of Cilicia, a citizen of no significant city and I beg you, please take me to the barracks, protect. Is that what he says? No, he says, I beg you, allow me an opportunity to speak to the people wow I would have had my head down tail, and I would have isn't that what you feel these people literally just a few verses earlier were beating him and likely would have killed him had this commander not shown up I would imagine Paul probably had blood streaming down his face maybe a puffy cheek like Dustin here this morning And yet his response is, can I talk to him? What does Paul do? He stands up, he's given that opportunity we find in chapter 22. We covered this last week. He first reveals, hey, I was just like you. I had this misguided zeal for God. He goes on and he describes his personal encounter with Jesus Christ. From there, he establishes the essence of his calling. God appointed me to witness to men everywhere about what I know about Jesus Christ. Finally, he finishes it up by declaring that God, that Jesus Christ himself, had specifically called him to go to the Gentiles. Look at chapter 22, verse 18 through 21. And I saw him saying to me, make haste. Get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Boy, isn't that true? And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I was also standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. What Paul is trying to do there is he's basically saying, Lord, I, I think they'll get, they'll see me as this great convert. You know, they'll see me as the great Apostle Paul and I was persecuting the Jews and then when they see that I came to Christ, they'll all turn too. And God says, Nah, ain't gonna happen. Verse 21, He said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. What's our takeaway with Paul's response here to all of this? I'm gonna say it this way. Persecution provides an opportunity for the gospel. But it's up to us to take it. There's two responses. Duck and run? Or figure out a way to turn that persecution into an opportunity to advance the gospel. Nobody wants to experience persecution. Can I get an amen on that? (laughs) It's reasonable to want to avoid it, to flee when we face it. In fact, there are times that Paul... Fled persecution. We have to make that very clear. Look at Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Look at verse 5. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe in the surrounding regions. There are times that the apostles fled persecution. Nothing wrong with that. But there are times where they took opportunity with that persecution as well. God does not expect us, if I can say it this way, to just lay out and play the martyr all the time. There are times where it's appropriate to flee. But there are other times... We should turn that into an opportunity to preach the gospel. Sometimes we don't have opportunity to flee. You don't have any other options than to either shut your mouth or to take it as an opportunity to advance the gospel. In many respects, Paul's in that situation here. Earlier, he could flee to another city. Here, he can't. And what does he do? Turns it into an opportunity. He preaches, he shares his testimony with the very people that had just got done trying to kill him. I'm pretty certain, and we've shared this before, that persecution here in the United States, I think, is going to continue to grow. Rarely does the enemy ever give up territory that he's conquered. And Satan's conquered an awful lot of territory here in the United States, culturally, socially, even religiously. He's not going to give that up easily. At some point, Christ will take it back. We can be assured of that. But I doubt we're going to go the other direction. I'm pretty convinced that persecution will begin to grow even at a more rapid rate than what we've seen here. We may have periods of, you know, the way things typically work is they advance three feet forward, two feet back, you know, that kind of thing. And I think we'll see that with persecution. There may be times of arrest, but times where we get relief But I think it's going to get more and more difficult. Again, 28 states so far have passed laws. Just on one issue alone, this idea that you cannot talk to or try even to convince those who have chosen to sin sexually, even if they come to you for help in some areas, you cannot even help them at their request without it being a crime. It's going to get worse. And the question for us is, do we just duck and run, or do we say, you know what, that's reality, and let's do what Paul did. Let's take an opportunity to stand up, and when accused of A, B, or C, admit it. Yes, that's what the Bible says. Let me tell you about my testimony. Let me tell you why I believe this. Because that's what Paul did. So we have these two initial responses of Paul. One not allowing this threat of persecution or the persecution itself to deter him from his mission of preaching the gospel. And then when faced with that persecution and being in the midst of it, while he may have fled at some times, at other times, said, I'm going to take this and turn it into an opportunity to advance the gospel. What's Paul's third response? This is the third and last response. Let me say it this way. Paul's third response was to exercise his legal rights as a Roman citizen. Paul wasn't afraid to exercise his legal rights. As a Roman, he had special rights. And it's interesting when you look at the very last statement Paul made you go back up into verse 21 of chapter 22, he repeats for the Jews, this is what Jesus told me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That is the phrase that now enraged these Jews. Up until that, we're told that they had gotten kind of quiet. They had been listening to him. But then Paul mentions the commission to go to the Gentiles, and all of a sudden, things go south. In fact, they yell at him, Away with such a man from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Let's read those verses. 21, he says, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22, They listen to him up until this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air. These people are maniacs at this point. Out of control. The commander ordered him to be brought to the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him in this way. So, maniacs, again, they're now probably in the same enraged state that they were in chapter 21, where they're now going to try to grab him, beat him, and try to kill him. In fact, later, we find that the commander had to actually pull Paul out, because he thought he was going to be torn apart by this angry mob. What is it about Paul's statement here that offended these people? Why is it they listened up through the gospel and other things, but now, when he mentions these Gentiles... They get all enraged. Now we know from Peter's words back in Acts chapter 10 when he went to see Cornelius that most Jews believed it was an offense to hang out with Gentiles, to be in their presence, to go into their home. Okay? That wasn't an Old Testament law, it was a tradition law. It was something that the Jews basically practiced and believed and treated as valid as an Old Testament statement. And the reason they did that was they said, look, um, Gentiles are defiled. So if we associate with them then we become defiled as well and God's not happy with us. And so the general consensus among Jews was a rather strange one. We know that historically there were a lot of non-Jewish Jewish Jewish converts, meaning that there were Gentiles, God-fearing Greeks that had converted to Judaism. There were a large number of them. The Jews appear to have been open to that. In fact, They were somewhat welcoming if a Gentile wanted to come in and adopt all the Old Testament laws and and all that kind of stuff. Then they were okay with it. In other words, act like a Jew. We're okay with you coming in. But they weren't all that convinced that it was their job to go and convert the Gentiles. You see, it was okay if they came to us, but we don't ever go out to them. We don't go out to them and draw them in. That's where we draw the line. That was offensive. They didn't believe it was their purpose to share the goodness of God with them. They clearly didn't understand God's plan through Abraham where he says that God would bless the nations through Abraham. So it was this sort of an interesting thing where, well, it's okay if you as a Gentile want to, you know, Kind of worship God like we do, but just make sure you obey all the same things, you know, make sure you do all that, but we got to keep our distance from you because you're still dirty. That was kind of the place they were at. But it even went beyond that because the thought that Paul would be called by God to specifically go to convert Gentiles, that was highly offensive. That irritated these people. God would never Do that. They were already convinced that Paul had been teaching the Jews to forsake Moses and preaching against them and defiling the temple. So all that kind of comes to its head. Now what's interesting to me about this is something very similar happened to Jesus when he talked about the Gentiles. Did you know that? Go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 24. Jesus said this. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to To none of them, in other words, not to the house of Israel, but only to Zarephath, Gentile, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elijah the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. What Jesus essentially says here is that God had sent Elijah to the Gentiles. And look at their response. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and they drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. They did the same thing to Jesus when he mentioned God going to the Gentiles. When Paul mentions God sending the Gentile, they get just as enraged as they did with Jesus. When the commander here sees the rage of these Jews, look at what happens, verses 23 through 24. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. This phrase examined by scourging means that they were going to brutally torture Paul. I can go into the details on how the scourging worked but it was basically a whip that had bits of bone and metal and other things in it and as they would whip you it would tear flesh off the body and leave open wounds. Tradition says that it took 40 lashes to kill a man. So oftentimes they would stop immediately before that. And the reason that this was being done here, notice that it says that the commander's purpose was to find out a reason why the Jews were so enraged by Paul. This was not an honest inquiry. He could have asked, could he not? But instead, the commander's plan was to brutally torture Paul to force a confession out of him. Remember, earlier when he came down to rescue Paul, He arrested him, put him in chains, bound him between two soldiers, as if Paul was the guilty party. You have this mob of angry Jews beating this man, and you automatically assume that the man is responsible? Here Paul is still presumed to be guilty to the point where this commander figures the best way to deal with this is to beat a confession out of Paul. Get him just to confess. You've got your answer kill him and you're done with them. talk about injustice this is now where we see Paul's third response he exercised his rights look at verses 25 through 29 but when they stretched him out with thongs that's the straps so now they're putting Paul in a place stretching him out so that they can begin to flog him Paul said to the centurion who was standing by he poses this rhetorical question Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Now, here's the thing. Roman citizens had certain legal rights. Now, within Rome, only about 15, I'm sorry, about 5 to 10% of citizens were actually Roman citizens. They didn't have the rights that an actual Roman citizen did couple of these rights I mean just mentioned some of them. Roman citizens could not be jailed beaten or scourged without first being found guilty by trial sound familiar they had the right to be tried before the emperor himself rather than a local court if that's what they chose we see that later when Paul appeals to Caesar non-citizens couldn't they just had to take the courts as they were Roman citizen could say, I don't like this court. I don't like what's going on. I appealed to Caesar and had the right to be tried by Caesar himself, the current emperor, essentially. Another right that Roman citizens had is they couldn't be executed by crucifixion. They reserved that for non-citizens. And so there were a list of rights that citizens had that non-citizens didn't. And so here Paul is, about ready to be scourged, which was contrary to the law. Why? He's a Roman citizen and he hadn't been found guilty yet. We've seen that before with the magistrates in another city where they basically bound them, beat them, threw them into prison, all without a proper trial. Remember what Paul did with that? When they they discovered he was a Roman, they tried to send him out of the city quietly and Paul's like, "Uh uh-uh, you come and you talk to me, you do it personally. You owe me that. It's my right as a citizen. And so here we see Paul do something rather interesting. He calls attention to the fact that he's a Roman citizen and what they're about to do violates Roman law. Look at what happens. Verse 20. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and he told him, saying, what are you about to do? (laughs) Now, it's a little muted here. At this point, he's pretty much taking Paul at his word. Like, oops, we're dealing with a Roman citizen. And probably the reason for that is because how specific Paul is. Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who's a, Ro- who's a Roman and uncondemned? Paul knew the law. And because of that, this Roman centurion automatically just kind of assumes he's probably telling the truth. He's probably a Roman. And so this, what are you about to do, is probably more like, what are you thinking? For this man is a Roman. We can't do this. So the centurion goes back to the commander and says, what are you doing? You just ordered us to flog this guy? Do you realize he's a Roman? We can't do this. The commander then comes and he says, verse 27, tell me, are you a Roman? And Paul said, yes. Look at their response now. 28, the commander said, answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. I bought my citizenship. Paul said, yeah, I got you beat. I was actually born a citizen now you couldn't buy Roman citizenship you know what this commander just said I bribed somebody it's behind the scenes this isn't easy to come by being a Roman citizen how did you get yours Paul's like because I was born a citizen verse 29 therefore those who are about to examine him now let's Say it like it is. Those who are about ready to torture Paul immediately let go of him. And the commander also, look at this, was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. It wasn't just illegal to torture, to beat, to whip a Roman. It was illegal to bind them in chains and lock them up. And so this commander and those around him were petrified at this point. Now, you know, I don't know why that is. If you were a commander, if you were a judge, if you were a jailer, and you mistreated a Roman citizen like this, you know what the penalty was? Execution. The Romans took it seriously. Seriously when you violated the rights of a Roman citizen. That's why this man is petrified. That's why the magistrates earlier on in Acts were petrified when they discovered Paul was a Roman. Their lives were on the line. Paul knew that, took advantage of that, and reminded him, I'm a Roman citizen. I'm going to exercise my rights. We're going to see later on another passage... That Paul also takes advantage of another right, which is to appeal to Caesar, and the reason is when he's standing before Festus, he realizes Festus is too involved socially and politically that Paul is not going to get a fair trial, and so what he does is he says I'm going to go over your head, and I'm going to ask to be tried specifically by Caesar because I don't trust you to give me a fair trial. So Paul's third response is he was willing to take advantage of his rights as a Roman citizen and he did that here he's done that before in the past and he'll do it again in the future so what's our takeaway from this God has afforded us certain rights and privileges here in the United States through our constitution and our bill of rights he's placed us here through his gracious hand some of our founding fathers wrote a pretty amazing document that gave us rights unlike any other country in the world Paul not only exercised his rights, he even called out the magistrates for abusing his rights. What does that mean for us? We ought to be able to do the same. I don't know that we have a whole lot of people that think we shouldn't. But I think this is a good reminder that we have every right, if you will, pardon the pun, to take advantage of the rights that we have here and demand that we be given fair trials or access to whatever it is. And we shouldn't be ashamed of doing that. God does not expect us just to lay down, shut our mouths, and take the abuse. He's put us in a place that, that affords us certain rights, and we should be able to take advantage of those. Now, there may be times when we should voluntarily choose to give up rights. You know, the scriptures tell us that it's not good for a believer to sue another believer in court. And Jesus himself said, maybe it's better to be wronged. And so there are times where as Christians we should be willing to give up those rights for the sake of the gospel. That's where I think a lot of Christians struggle. That's my rights! How dare you! And they'll actually do things by exercising those rights that damage the name of Christ. Even though they legally have the right to do it, It reflects poorly on Christ. And that's the lawsuit issue that Paul talks to the Corinthians about. Hey, you harmed me. I'm going to sue you now. And they drag the name of Christ into the courts, secular courts. And maybe in getting what they legally deserve, they maybe harm a brother or sister in Christ, or they blaspheme the name of Jesus because of it. So there are times where we should, as Jesus says, turn the other cheek. So we have to be careful with the idea of exercising our rights. Just because we have them doesn't mean we should exercise them. Sometimes the grace and mercy and goodness might accomplish more, might reflect better on the name of Christ, the one we represent. But there are other times where we should stand firm and say, no, I'm going to fight this because I have rights. And I think where we have to figure that out sometimes is which of those advances the gospel. Remember, Paul was told here that he would go and testify before kings, government officials. We're going to see, as a result of what he does here, his life is preserved and he's able to go on and now testify before two governors, a king, and ultimately, all of Caesar's household. Now, I'll say this without... Anything other than my own imagination. But I would imagine what might be going through Paul's mind at this point is I don't want to be flogged. But knowing what we know of Paul, his mind was probably on the bigger picture. And he was willing to take advantage of his rights as a Roman citizen to continue to progress the gospel. Knowing that this would allow him to fulfill what Jesus had already told him would happen. And so Paul took advantage of those rights. So exercising our rights can oftentimes serve as a way to advance the gospel. For instance, Christian business owner being told he has to do A, B, or C when it comes to weddings or whatever can make a choice to "Eh, just go ahead and do it or can fold up his business shut the doors take the easy way out flee okay Or can stand up and say, you know what? No, I'd like this to go into the courts. I'd like to get the coverage on this. Because it gives me an opportunity to stand up for what's right. To declare that I am a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and what I'm doing is living in obedience to him. I will not celebrate something that he despises. And I'm going to turn this into an opportunity by exercising these rights, by allowing this to play out, by getting myself an attorney, by investing resources... It will advance the gospel because it gives me a platform now to declare my faithful obedience to Jesus Christ and my relationship with him. See the different options that we have? But it's not wrong to take advantage of the rights that God has given us as long as those rights still exist, right? I think I shared with you just recently um, what was happening in West Lafayette with the biblical counseling ministry that some of you had attended for some training. It was where I got my counselor training. For the last 10 years or so, the last decade, the city council in West Lafayette, Indiana, has done a number of things targeting Faith Baptist. They're one of the largest churches in the area. They're the largest Christian counseling ministry in the nation. They have three campuses. They're kind of a mega church of sorts, with multiple campuses. You hear me often, i rail against that stuff. This is one of those occasions where I've got a tremendous amount of respect for the church, the pastors, and the staff out there at um, Faith Church because of the way that they've done things. But the city council has not been happy. So when they went to build another building a while back, there was a lot of things that the city council tried to do to prevent that, made it known that it's because they were a church they were going to shut them down. And they fought that and they won. And then most recently here, the city council tried to pass an ordinance that was specifically targeting their counseling ministry. There was no other reason for the ordinance there. They were upset that there's, again, a very large public counseling ministry. The state actually would recommend their counseling ministry to people when other counseling avenues had failed. When I was at Faith Baptist, it was called Faith Baptist at the time, um, for my training, um, there was an individual that was meeting there that had been through the state system and was ultimately looking at possibly prison time or other things, unless behavior changed. And the state recommended faith counseling because of the success they've had. Well, things have changed because now the city council is saying, we don't want you here, we want you shut down. And so crafted this ordinance that would very specifically um, target them. And they, there's reasons, and I won't get all the details, there's reasons for that. They know they were specifically being targeted because of some comments made by city council members explaining essentially that that's why this ordinance was written. We don't like them. We want them shut down, which is partly why there were no religious exemptions built into it either. And the way the bill was crafted, it would have even made it challenging for parents to talk to their own children about issues like this. Now, when council members were asked about that, oh, no, 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 well, then why not put that in the bill? Why not put all the religious exemptions in your bill? Well, because we know why. Well, the question is how does Faith Baptist respond? Well, they fought it. Threatened legal action. And ultimately, a couple of weeks ago, the city finally backed down. And their reason for doing so was we can't take a lawsuit. So what they did was they basically tabled that resolution passed another one basically asking the state assembly to craft a law very similar to it. In other words, yeah, we can't fight you. But what I love, and you can go and you can watch videos by Steve Vyers, a pastor, talking about this and stuff, and from day one he said, look, we don't care what you do. You fine us? Fine. We are not going to stop doing what we're doing. And they were facing as much as a $1,000 fine per incident per individual. Could have been hefty. But they said, no. There was a a campus, I think, uh, Indianapolis, college campus. I was watching videos and big posters with Steve Byers' name on it, just threatening Steve Byers himself, this is a college campus, because of the way he's been played out in the media. His response was loving, gracious. But what's really interesting is one of the city council members, Publicly stated that he was offended by the fact that when he met with Steve Viers over this issue, that Steve Viers tried to convert him to Christ. Sound like somebody we know? That's the Steve Viers I knew from twenty years ago, thirty years ago. Ultimately, in exercising their rights, this thing has been tabled. Now it may come up again, it likely will come up again at some point. But boy, the the fact that news media picked this up and that others saw this, many were offended, but the reality of it is this the the, the actions that took place in West Lafayette against the church and against virus and against others, the fact that they exercised their rights and didn't just say, well, we'll stop counseling on that issue then because we want to keep and save our ministry here. We do way too much good and, and so we'll just keep our mouth shut on that issue. We just won't do that. We'll obey you in that. They said, no, sorry. And as a result they took a lot of heat had to threaten lawsuits had to exercise their rights but at the same token never lost sight of the fact that we can use this to advance the gospel. And again even trying to convert (laughs) one of the Jewish members of the board. That's the strange part about it too is he happens to be a Jewish individual. So I look at all of this this morning and I see how Paul responded the persecution. He didn't let the fear take him off track. He didn't use it to, you know, shut him up. The second response was to ask himself, "How can I use this as an opportunity to advance the gospel?" Those very same people that are beating me, those enemies of mine, I'll love them like Christ said to, and I'll share my testimony with them. I'll try to turn this into an opportunity for the gospel. And then, lastly, he wasn't afraid to exercise the legal rights that he had. To maintain his right to continue to preach the gospel.